Hey beautiful teachers, I'm Nicola Canton from Vibrant Music Teaching. Welcome to the show that's about you. This podcast gives you a sneak peek into the lives and businesses of private music studio teachers so that you can share in their successes, learn from their mistakes and feel part of a global community that's dedicated to sharing music with others. Today we're going to hear from Fiona Cockling in England. Like me, Fiona didn't study music at university and she sometimes deals with self-doubt when talking to other teachers who did online. Listen to hear how she manages these thoughts and finds balance in her studio. Hello Fiona, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. So we like to start with a little game here. I want you to tell me two lies and one truth about yourself, and I'll try to guess which one is which. Um, I have five cats. I play five instruments at advanced level, um, and I've broken three bones in my life. Oh, I like the number theme we've got going here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, five cats, five instruments, or three bones. Which one is true? I think, I think you play five instruments. Oh, you got me. I should have chosen harder ones. <laughs> <laughs> that was hard. I okay. was torn. I, I only went for, I thought about the bones, but I thought, no, she put three there. Actually, I've never broken any bones. Well, I'm glad I got one because most of the time I lose at this game. So <laughs> you gave me a win. What are the five instruments? I played piano, church organ, euphonium, clarinet, and I sing at grade eight level. Wow. That's quite a collection. Yeah. I've sort of picked them up along the way. Yeah. Yeah. They attach themselves to much like cats for, um, cat people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm restraining myself on cats. Okay. So you don't even have one. We do have one and we have one dog. And I think if we had another cat, the dog would leave home. But if we had another dog, um, the cat might leave home. So we just yeah. stick with what we've got and two kids and that's quite enough altogether. That sounds like enough to me, yeah. So that's a little bit about you outside of teaching or generally. We'd love to get to know a bit about you as a teacher. So I want you to try and pick three words that would describe you as a teacher. If it helps you to imagine it, you can imagine a billboard and it's already going to have your studio information and they've chosen the picture already of a piano or something like that. And you just get to add these three words to represent you. What would you put? It's quite a hard one, actually. I know it's um, a challenge. Yeah, um, I hope it would be enjoyable because I try to make it all enjoyable and um, rounded as well, because I do include almost all areas. I know a lot of teachers locally that do any oral or theory or anything um, and musical in that I try to teach music before I teach piano. Yes, totally. Um, yeah. Yeah, those are great words. Enjoyable, rounded, musical in the truest sense of the word. I love that. So what was your own musical upbringing like? Did you start lessons young? What was your I, Yeah, I was four. Um, I don't have that many memories except of loving my first piano teacher. She was an old lady and we used to go to her farmhouse for lessons, me and my brother. And her house always smelled of cooking and cats and things and just remember it being generally a sort of happy but I don't actually remember anything except a dozen a day then when I went to school I started with a different teacher at school when I was 10 um 
that was just one exam to the next. All I remember is doing exams and exams and it wasn't a lot of fun, to be honest. I was afraid of my teacher as well. That's really interesting. So the first teacher really fostered the love of Mm -hmm. at least going to her house and probably music at the same time, even if you don't remember the details. Yeah. Do you think that's the reason you stuck with it through the exam system? I, I think I didn't have a lot of choice, to be honest, because my parents said you are learning. Okay. Um, and they said, you get to grade five or age 15, and then you can choose. Um, and by the time I'd got to that, I'd kind of, I'd taken up singing as well. And I'd kind of just, I didn't really have many lessons during sixth form, but when I went away to uni, I actually chose to have lessons again and I had to pay for them myself. My parents weren't paying, so I must've really wanted to do it. Yeah. And then when I got my grade eight at university, I actually wrote to my very first ever piano teacher to tell her I'd passed my grade eight and she wrote back and said she was proud and stuff like that. So that was nice. Oh, that's so lovely that you kept in touch to let her know. I'm sure it meant the world to her. We know as teachers that it would. Well, it would to me if it was my students. Yeah, that's beautiful. So did you practice all the way through? Were you always prepared ahead of time for Um, those exams you did? I have a theory that the world is divided into practices and sight readers. And the reason I'm a very good sight reader is all those years of pretending I'd practiced. But also I went to a boarding school and we had supervised practice three days a week and they actually checked a register to check we were actually there. Um, so I don't know how effective my practices were, but I had to do um, three hours a week of practice because they checked whether we did it. Oh, that's really interesting. So yeah. you had to put in the time. Yeah, you could have just noodled around. Did you have headphones on or something? No, we were all in separate practice rooms. But I do oh, remember okay. a certain amount of dodging between practice rooms when my friends were in as well. So I think there was quite a lot of not practicing going on. Yeah, but I'd say even that much, even the little bits that you did to show that you were doing something probably. Well, I passed all the exams, so I must have done something at some point. Yeah, absolutely. So you said the world was divided into sight readers and practicers, um, somewhat tongue in cheek, but I'd say probably piano teachers are divided into that because there's also the much larger category that just quit. <laughs> so Well, I'm almost in that category, to be honest. I practice when it's stuff I have to practice, like for my advanced students. Um, retook my grade eight three years ago because I wanted to do the teaching certificate, the diploma at the ABRSM, and I just felt my grade eight was so long ago I mm. was needed to re. So I practiced really hard for that, and but um, you know, life gets in the way, doesn't it? And I haven't got any further beyond trying to get my grade six theory. Yeah, it it's such a different experience though taking that as an adult. It really is. Yes, I took diazepam before that. <laughs> yeah. My hands were shaking so badly that I didn't think I'd be able to actually play. Yes, I definitely experienced the shakes. Although that started in my teens, that didn't start when I was an adult going to an exam. That started Probably much earlier. Probably did with me, but I don't remember that far back. So, is there anything you wish had been included in your lessons? Kind of sounds like there was, if you well, felt trapped. Things in this that would have been system. useful later on. I'd love to have done accompanying. Nobody, no students did accompanying at my school. Looking back, the teachers always did it. Um, so obviously even the like really advanced students, I mean, there were girls in my, when I was 11 who already had their grade eight and they didn't either. Mm. Um, so that would have been really useful. I don't know how much I've enjoyed it. I'd have loved to have done it. Nobody ever taught me improvising. I've had to teach myself so on that because I think it's important, but in order to teach it, I've had to learn it. Um, it has been fun learning, but I still feel like I'm a quite a basic level in terms of chord progressions. It would have been a lot more helpful to have had done that. Yeah. And of course, we'd have liked to have played games. We always liked to have played games, but they weren't a thing when I was young. Nobody did no, them. they weren't. 
yeah i don't think we can necessarily well some people were playing games but it, yes it was so narrow that we can't really expect our teachers to have done that but the improv yeah. would have been a thing the accompaniment is really interesting because especially if you did singing it would have been a totally different experience if a student was accompanying you even yeah. on that side of it because i'd always learned the piano was something you always did on your own yeah but even if you didn't end up accompanying yourself, if students were accompanying you, it would give you that goal yeah. of I could be in that role. Yeah. It's a different. And I started doing it a bit at university because I was asked to, but I didn't have really that much of understanding of how to do it. I didn't have the feeling of keeping going all the time that you learn when you accompany. Yes. I mean, my children both play in brass bands and they learn from the day one that if they hesitate, the band will wait. Um, but as a pianist, I think really much harder to teach that because even in lessons if you've got a student unless you're actually playing duets with them it's re really hard to make them keep going when they make a mistake yes it's i know it's really hard that's why i advocate duets so much and backing tracks and even drummer tracks and that kind of thing yeah. because you need to keep the train moving yeah and otherwise that first ensemble experience is such a shock isn't it you're like oh but that's something I've had to learn in order to teach it because when you don't even notice when you're hesitating if it's just you uh, and I think I didn't realize when I first started teaching how important the continuity thing was and I just don't think I did a good job of forcing students to continue yeah fantastic great goals to have for your students how did you get into teaching yourself then oh yeah by accident to be honest my degree's not in music. I came to the, the city where I'm at Durham in UK and I came here to do a PhD at the university. I was absolutely skint. The PhD wasn't in history, in music either. That was also in history, but I started teaching piano so I could live. Um, and after about two years of doing both, I much in, I preferred teaching piano so much more than being an academic. So 20 years later, I'm still in Durham and I'm still teaching piano. I'm no longer studying history. Yeah, well, I mean, it's similar to my story. I fell into it as well. And my degree is not in, in music either, but it finds you sometimes. So. I, I think also that can, so many teachers that have this massive musical pedagogy background, you just feel quite inferior when you haven't got it. I mean, yeah. I don't in my own life, in my own studio, but I do online, definitely. It can make you feel that way, but often there's things that you know that they don't or that you understand better that someone who does have that background, especially someone who did sail through more easily with certain areas of music study, but I they think don't understand I've, students. Yeah, well, where I've really succeeded, I think, is that my mom's a primary school teacher. She was before she retired. So I spent a lot of time sitting on the floor in year one classrooms, listening to readers. And then I was a teaching assistant for a few years. So I understand how children work. Mm. Um, even if it wasn't anything to do with music, I can talk to them because I'm used to it. I think that's really, really helped. Yes, absolutely. That's a great experience to have in your in your background. Can you think of a student that in particular that changed something about how you teach or how you do business? It's difficult to narrow it down to one student. I certainly I have this little girl. She's just about to turn seven now, but she started with me when she was only just three and she was the youngest student I'd ever had. Um, and actually, I did think quite hard about whether I was going to start her. But her mum insisted, you know how parents sometimes are, they insist, oh, she's very musical. She can do this, that and the other. Um, I learned a lot about, I think it's, it started, the way I start students at the beginning of any age changed after teaching her. 
because I spent nearly a year just doing, well, first half of Tiny Finger Takeoff, apart from many other things. Um, and a lot of keyboard geography, a lot of high and low, a lot of all that really early stuff that I never realized was so important. Um, obviously it varies. I mean, if you've got a nine-year-old, you might spend two weeks doing that. As if you've got a four-year-old, you spend a year. Um, and I really think that's made a difference. And I'm now much more confident with free readers. I mean, free, like reading readers. Because they don't know their letters necessarily. Yeah, pre-reading um, their letters. Yeah. 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 And I've got her little sister now who's four. Um, and she's come on a lot quicker. And I think it's just because I've more experience in knowing how to cope with it. And also I've done more research into what's out there. So I use a mixture of lots of different um, things with her. I've used the Daniels McFarland, the Supersonics primer, her first one. And it's really, really helped among all the other games that we've do, we've do of yours. Um, and the rhythm vocab and all that kind of thing. And Wendy Stevens menagerie, rhythm menagerie. Um, so all of that mixed together. And I think, cause I know a lot more of what's out there. Cause I looked it up for her sister. Um, I sort of throw a lot more at her and she's coached incredibly well. Okay. So even when they start a bit older, even like six or seven still, or even actually 10 or 11, they still get some kind of that beginning training that I learned with this first little girl. Yes. And she's still with me. So I must've done something right. Yes, absolutely. But I love that progression and how you discovered all these different um, preliminary steps mm -hmm. that yes, maybe for some students, they only take you two weeks, but they still make a difference for them. And for your preschoolers, your four-year-olds, it's the difference of night and day. It's the difference of them struggling away for a year and actually yeah. making progress. I look back and I think, God, the five-year-olds I taught 10 years ago had such a rough deal. Yeah, we all look back on some element of at least one element of our teaching from our beginning years or many and think, no, those poor students. But all we can do is get better, I think. So is there any big mistake that you think you've made in your teaching besides maybe that? It could be well, something more general or something. Yeah, there's one thing I'm particular, and I still think I try and I do it sometimes, though I try not to. It's trying to do too many new things at a time. Not necessarily with students, but with me. You know, you read online all these things. Oh, that's a fantastic idea. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. And then you might try them, but you might only try them a few times. And But you get overwhelmed by having tried to do too much. And also try not to feel inferior because of thinking, well, I just, I mean, I don't do much work with composition to my students. But it's taken me a long time to get to the point of thinking, it's just not one of my priorities and I can't do everything. You just can't. I mean, the majority of my students only have 30 minutes and you just you know, you can't do anything much in that. And even if well, I'm in quite a deprived area, I couldn't ask them to pay for 45 minutes. And also I can't fit them all in. I've got a waiting list already. So if they, if I stretch their lessons out, I couldn't fit them all in. So there's no real answers to it. Um, yeah. And there's some things you just have to know your own priorities. As you said, composing is just not a priority. I think if they're improvising, if you're focusing on trying to include that and teach yourself about it. I think that's a great place to be. And it still opens them up to the world of creating music. And this one or two, like one came in and she said, oh, well, I mean, I've only been teaching since September. And she came in and said, oh, well, I've, I've, I've written this piece. What she meant was she'd worked it out in her head and she played it for me. I said, great, get Muse score out. And we sat and wrote out her piece for her and she went home all thrilled. Um, and I think if a student comes to me and says, I've worked this piece out, then I'm happy to help them write it down. Um, but beyond the sort of very basics of knowing how it all works, I just don't have time to cover it. Yes. 
But that's what allows you to sail by those posts on Facebook or wherever it is that you're scrolling. Just say, that's not for me. At least right now, that's not for me. Yeah. So one last thing. Those moments of thinking, well, everybody else is doing it. I should be doing it. Mm. It's trying to work. Get past the should. Yes. Don't should all over yourself, for sure. So if you could turn back time and talk to your first year teaching self, is there any advice you think you could give yourself that would actually land, that would you would listen to at that time? I would say there's more out there than exams. I was taught towards exams. And when I started teaching, and probably as everybody does, I started the way I was taught. And it wasn't until I joined Facebook and discovered there's a whole world out there. I started teaching differently. Now, I don't, I mean, I don't, refuse to do exams I do even occasionally actually suggest you know your child could do grade three and it would be good for them to do this blah 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 and I've had I mean I've got one that's just done grade three that's never done any others that's a long time of working on only three pieces and there's so much stuff out there um and I think that was it I don't work I mean I, I do use method books but I don't stick rigidly to method books you know, everywhere they are in a method there's some other piece from some other person that I can throw in and it keeps life interesting because for anything else it's boring just doing method books the whole time yeah you know, i get bored i mean the student must get bored if i do yes and even if the student isn't bored i think the teacher being bored is a valuable reason because the student's going to sense your attitude to it and, and also they don't, yeah there's only right. them doing that method book but if you've got like eight or nine students doing the same mm -hmm. book i mean god that could be hours on end couldn't it absolutely it definitely can so it's great to know the diversity you can include, and I'm the same as you, I recommend students do certain exams at some points, but not all the time. And, and your heart sinks when you've got a parent who comes in and says, well, she did grade one last term. When are we starting grade two? And you think, oh, God. Yeah. My parents are pretty well trained on that, not to say it to me. I don't have one many, student but... who the student is just, she just wants to do the next one. She will do other things in between. It's so ingrained in the in the culture of music culture in this country. I, I don't know if it's the same in Ireland, it's but in the, the UK. Yeah. Yeah, and parents want it because they want to know what they're paying for. They want to be able to boast to their friends. And no, as a mother of two brass players, I catch myself falling into it just as badly. Yeah, because you, know? you want to see that it's going somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there is a point where kids do need to know what level they're at. They just don't need to know it every single time they're ready for an exam. Yeah, and there are other ways to measure that. And I think if we communicate that to parents, a lot of that, at least in my experience, tends to go away. A lot of the pressure from them, if they know that you have a plan and that their student is getting, their child, sorry, is getting somewhere um, and that you can measure and that. And I started doing recitals five years ago. We only still only do one a year, but I saw them like all the American teachers that do them all the time. And I thought, I should be doing this too, even though I've never come across one. My children have never played in one except. Um, it's, parents love it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we're not the really polished posh rocks with a grand piano in the hall with a lot of that some of the more it's like the teachers in America do, because it's more their culture, I think. It's very much often a work in progress. And I'll sort of say, I mean, I had a child who did, we did a concert in October and he'd only been playing five weeks. And I said, you know, this, this, that's, he's been playing five weeks. So can we just accept how amazing it is that he can do this? And he was literally yeah. playing CDE with one hand. He had the courage to stand up and switch. Yeah. And I think when we put it like that, a lot of parents can put themselves in those shoes. I try to encourage them to anyway, and just say like, you I wouldn't do that. get up here. Yeah. 
I do that to the students when they're nervous. I say, of course you're nervous. Everybody's nervous, but you're being watched by a whole lot of people who wouldn't get up and do it themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's great that you started to include that. So is there anything in particular you think that people outside the teaching industry misunderstand about what we do? Oh, yes, yes. The, this, um, I pay for this 30 minutes, really gets on my nerves because they literally think they're paying for their lesson time. And they don't see that for every 30 minutes of lessons, there's at least an hour of the stuff. Even if it's not planning, it's looking for repertoire, it's looking for games, it's all the printing and laminating. And, you know, I mean, I only teach because I have, what do I have, 19 students. I teach about 16 hours in total, but I must work for 30 more mm. each week. I think parents think if they've missed their 30 minutes, then they've, they've lost their money, you know, because they pay in advance and I don't refund. Mm -hmm. But actually... No, that 30 minutes isn't wasted because it's it's all been used on other things. It is. And also they've held their spot. You said you, you have see, a you waiting list. Yeah, you wouldn't. I do. Yeah. And you wouldn't ask for a refund if your child missed a swimming lesson. No, but it's because it's one on one. I think that's yeah. what tends to trip people up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's certainly something people all over the world will resonate with. I'm sure. Yeah. And if, I think we all try to be flexible and if we can know fitting them in somewhere else than we will but there's not all you can't always do it there's always yeah. some parents that will take the mickey really yes it's up to us not to let them yeah. sometimes most of them are wonderful but some of them shit okay finally then fiona i want you to imagine a teacher out there who stumbled across this episode but they're maybe not as connected as you are with other teachers and they're feeling uncertain maybe they have the same concerns you had about not having the degree in music or anything else is there any advice you could give that unsure teacher? Um, I think, and to a certain extent, I know that the beginning years of students is really important. To a certain extent, you learn by doing it. Um, and I think you kind of online, yeah, getting, because I, I, I mean, there's times I think I really don't want to be on Facebook anymore, but I get so much useful stuff for music out of it that I can't leave. Um, and I would recommend, you know, join all these groups, see what other people are doing, pick and choose what's important for you. And you also have to work to your demographic. You see a lot of posts online, you know, what are people charging? Well, that's completely irrelevant because what I charge in the northeast of England, Londoners would love that. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, yeah, just do it. But make sure you're not winging it every week like I was when I started. I just thought that was all you needed to do. Because yeah. there's a difference between being flexible and going with your student and making it up as you go along. There is definitely. And I agree with you that you need to see what's out there. You need to join, join in, like join the communities. But also, as you said earlier, don't try to do everything at one time. I think, I mean, I don't think I'd know how to do this, but I think if you could sit in on a, on a, a lessons with like a nearby teacher would probably help. But I think, I don't know what it's like in other parts of the world, but here it's actually quite difficult to do that. Um, Partly because it's actually, it's not so easy to find out where teachers are. We don't have um, catalogues of where teachers are and that kind of thing. I mean, if you could do that, it would be good. I don't know how possible that is. Yeah, it's, it's tricky in most parts of the world to find teachers unless they have an online presence. I certainly agree with you that sitting in on lessons, um, if you can't do that and you're a young teacher, getting a mentor and actually having them coach you through teaching. Yeah. Or if you can't get either of those things and you're in an area where there aren't other teachers around you, 
at least watching some videos. So you're kind of pseudo sitting in on lessons. I have yeah. videos online, Irina Gorin. If you look on YouTube, there's several teachers who yeah. are teaching. Well, I started a teacher. I started a student who's very visually impaired. She's nearly blind about a year ago. And I asked online and people recommended the Amber Trust. So for example, I went on and I watched all their examples of music lessons, not even just piano, some of them were other instruments, of examples of teaching blind children. And quite a few of them were irrelevant to me, but I still picked up bits and pieces and they were interesting. Yeah, that's a fantastic resource. I hadn't heard of that before. I'll have to check oh, it out. Oh, somebody recommended it to me. It's good. Yeah. Well, this has been so fantastic, Fiona. Thank you for joining us on the show and sharing your story You're very story welcome. Thank us. you. It's been um, fun. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Do you love this show? Then please share your favorite episode with a teacher friend who you think might enjoy it and benefit from it. If you resonated with today's story, then the Vibrant Music Teaching membership is probably a good fit for you too. Find out more at vibrantmusicteaching.com.